Good morning. Welcome to worship here. It is the last Sunday before Christmas 2020, um, which happens to be December the 20th. So welcome everyone. And I'm going to hold off saying the traditional greeting until the end of worship because we still have Advent to go. If you take a look at your bulletins, there's uh, announcements in there. A reminder where the Acme Community Cashback Program is still going on, so keep an eye on your Acme receipts. Brother and Volunteer Service, BVS, has many people all across the world right now doing volunteer work. If you would, it would be greatly appreciated. Any Christmas cards that you send, I know it's a little late in the season and they'll probably get there afterwards at this point, but if you have a chance to write a card and send it out, it would be greatly appreciated to all of our members and friends who are, well, I saw there's some in my, my old home area of Lancaster and Harrisburg. There are those in California and those in Northern Ireland and Japan and all over. A special thank you to Janice Myler and our brothers and sisters in the choir for their hard work that we are able to have the virtual choir. Janice, computer went better this week? A little bit. A little bit. Thank you so much. I know it takes a lot of work. I do have a correction of something that was missed in the, uh, I can't what's called, the newsletter, a Christmas greeting to and from the Ludwigs that did not make it in there. So, Merry Christmas, Ludwigs. Are there any joys or are there any other announcements that you would like to share today? This is officially Poinsettia uh, Sunday, so don't forget to grab your poinsettias on the way out today. Are there any joys or concerns that you wish to share today? It is wonderful to see Dwayne here. We're so glad to see you walking in. <laughs> wonderful. It's a... As with many, you know, Christmas plans are changing from our typical, which may mean that we're not seeing family members we would typically see this Christmas. But prayers for those as they travel and create or do something new this year for Christmas. And blessings that you get to be with your grandson as he's opening his gifts on Christmas this year. I have one joy that was handed to me. A special thank you to Bev for all the extra practice that she has been putting in um, for our after church hymn sings and all that practice and work that that entails, which is, you already practice a lot. Thank you for all you do. Prayers today. <laughs> she would like to ask for your prayers today. <laughs> today we light the last candle the one of love. I can't believe it's already been four weeks, four Sundays as we walked from hope to peace to joy to love, and we sit on the cusp of Christmas. Love sits at the end of Advent. It's the last one we celebrate, but at the same time, it's the whole purpose of the season. God so loved the world that he sent his only son. A passage that we say over and over again. We often see those slogans on bumper stickers or on signs, the reason for the season. Yes, it's Jesus, but the reason there is a season is because of love, the love of God for us, the love that we have for one another. So as we light this last candle, let's prepare ourselves to be open to accepting that gracious gift, that amazing love that, frankly, is frightening at how immense it is. And let's be ready to show that love back out to the world.
if you'll join us as we enter this time of worship. You'll pray with me. Holy Creator, 
We thank you. You're almost here. The time when the baby appears in the manger. Prepare us. Open us to your love. Prepare us for the journey to walk beside you, to learn from you. We pray for the dawn that comes after the dark night. We lift up prayers. Prayers for those who are at home struggling with COVID. For those who are learning a new Christmas season because this year has changed so much. We pray for them and all those names in our hearts that are unsaid. We lift up in joy, healing bodies for brothers and sisters who are here again worshiping with us, for brothers and sisters who share their gifts and talents, for those who put in so many hours preparing to celebrate with us. We lift up in joy the coming holiday, the coming birth. May our hearts be open to your love. Amen.
Our reading today is chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians. It's a short chapter, so. This is Paul writing to the Corinthians. If I speak with tongues of mankind and angels, but I do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy, and I know all the mysteries and all knowledge. And I, if I have all faith, so as to remove mountains, but I do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give away all of my possessions to charity, and if I surrender my body so that I may glory, but do not have love, it does me no good. Love is patient. Love is kind. It is not jealous. Love does not brag. It is not arrogant. It does not act disgracefully. It does not seek its own benefit. It is not provoked. It does not keep account of wrongs suffered. It does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices in, with the truth. It keeps every confidence, it believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. But if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away with. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away with. For we know in part and in prophecy in part but when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away with. When I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. And now we see in a mirror dimly. But then we will see face to face. Now I know in part, and then I will know fully just as I have also been fully known. But now faith, hope, and love remain. These three, the greatest of them, love. Blessed is the word of God. I love that passage. It's one of my favorite in the Bible, one of my favorite Paul passages. Now, Paul wrote this to the Corinthians. Now, he had spent about a year and a half living with them. And then he went back and visited them later. Now, I know we covered Corinth briefly in our summer series on Acts and a bit more during our Bible studies, but a quick overview is always appropriate. Corinth sits on an isthmus that connects the Peloponnese Peninsula. That's still so much fun and so hard to say in the Greek mainland. Sitting there on that thin stretch of land, the city controlled both land and sea routes, connecting the eastern and the western halves of the Roman Empire. It had lots of cultures, religions, ideas, traveling through it constantly. It was more open than the conservative Roman Philippi, and more welcoming than the academic and very heady Athens where Paul had both preached at previously. It was the ideal spot to plant a church, to help grow the movement. But things had not gone as Paul had hoped and planned for since he had left. Other Christian leaders had come through, the two biggest being Peter and Apollos. They too were well-liked. But instead of it strengthening the church, it ended up hurting the church because factions started to go around their particular teachings. And so now there was a church, a portion of the church that followed Peter, a portion that followed Apollos, and a portion that followed Paul. Other members were having illicit affairs and engaging in pagan rituals that were not acceptable to being Christian, but they claimed it was okay 
as they were sanctified and justified in Christ. There was a large open argument as to whether it was okay to eat from animals that were sacrificed to the pagan gods. This sounds like a fairly minor problem nowadays, but we're talking about the large majority of the meat that would have been available to them. Others were using worship time to argue with one another or to stand up and speak in tongues and turn all attention towards themselves. Or they would use it to raise themselves above their brothers and sisters, saying that I'm more important than you all. And lastly, there were those who denied the importance of the resurrection. This all really upset Paul. And so he wrote a letter back to them. He had known these people so well. He had spent, as I said, a year and a half living with them. He knew them on a personal level. And this division and anger that was happening was not what he had envisioned for this community. The letter was written, and we call it 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians is really a series of five essays each one addressing one of these problems or a group of these problems. And our reading today comes from the fourth section, the response to the problems happening in worship. If you wanted to check it out, it's chapters 11 through 14. But it really is also connected to the one before it, which is about eating meat. I got to kind of imagine, though, what this early worship would have been like. Now, I remember when I was first dating Lauren, I went to a Roman Catholic Mass with her. I'd never been to a Roman Catholic Mass before. And we said the Lord's Prayer, or the Our Father. And I went on to say, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. If you've been to a Catholic Mass, they don't say that part. So all of a sudden, I was speaking in a very quiet room. I've been to a Quaker worship. Quaker worships are silent, depending on the exact Quaker group you're with. But for the most part, there's a big silent part where you are meant to meditate on God, on the word, on your inner self, to hear God speaking through your heart. And so you sit there quietly with someone standing up here or there to deliver the message that they heard from God or even a, a charismatic Pentecostal service with people dancing and jumping and singing and speaking in tongues and weeping and wailing and writhing on the floor. I imagine any of those situations might feel out of place for you, especially if you attended a service like this. Now imagine the gathering in Corinth, new Christians who were formerly worshiping the old pagan gods with all their myriad of rituals and cultural things. And alongside the Jews, the Jewish Christians, who had long followed the Torah, and now we're trying to mix that in with their worship of this new Messiah. There's no normal, there's no time-honored tradition, no group understanding of, oh, you start with this and you end here, and this is what happens in the middle. The worships are loud, messy gatherings. And so there are people interrupting one another to argue. There are those who are turning the anachronistic spotlights on themselves by praying in unknown tongues. Now on top of this, there's these new freedoms in Christ that have led people to engage in activities that, well, we and Paul would see as, well, incompatible with Christianity, people taking it in a direction it was never meant. There are others who are doing things that are perfectly acceptable in our culture and, frankly, acceptable to Paul. But it's so different than the Corinthian culture that it's creating a distraction. And people are incensed by their behavior. Things like women having uncovered heads. I know, just scandalous. 
Paul responds to these problems. Ordering worship, calling out sin, trying to rein in acceptable but scandalous behavior. Other than the sinning, you know, that part, you know, Paul's against. Paul really doesn't have a problem with uncovered hair. He doesn't have a problem with eating meat dedicated to idols, doesn't mind people speaking in tongues. And Paul is a Pharisee. He loves arguing. I mean, that's half of Acts is Paul arguing, and it's almost all the letters is Paul arguing. He liked a good theological argument. But he had a problem with things that kept people from God. He put himself in the position of some random Corinthian who heard about these new Christians and decided to check out a service. Walking into this loud, chaotic, outrageous service and getting the wrong impression of what it means to be a Christian and maybe being turned away and never really hearing what the gospel message is. Chapters 12 through 14 is Paul's response to all the problems. 12 is about the unity of the church. We all know those. The eye does not say to the foot because you're not all those. 14 is about having a ordered worship so that all can experience. But 13 is really the heart of it. The whole reason for the unity and order in the church. Why it's needed for love, for love of God, for love of brothers and sisters, for love of neighbors. Paul encourages those gifts of the Spirit, but reframes them and reminds the people that they are meant to serve the Lord, to serve love, and that gifts used to raise yourself up, gifts used simply for the pleasure of having the gifts, isn't the purpose of them. It's not why you get them. Of course, gifts is the byword of the season. It's Christmas. And sadly, I know, it doesn't matter how many Grinch films they make. Frankly, I think all three of them are pretty good. Whether Charlie Brown Christmas plays on public TV or if you have to have a, a subscription streaming service to watch it, or if you're like me and watch Tim Burton's The Nightmare Before Christmas faithfully every year. We all know that the kids don't go rushing down to the front room because it's the day where we celebrate Jesus' birth or because it's family time. We all know it's about those pretty, sweetly wrapped par parcels beneath the tree. I'm not being critical of this. I'm, I'm, I may be 34, but I kind of remember what it was like to be four and to be running down to those gifts. I got to understand the rest of the Christmas season as I got older. You know, those movies certainly helped. I'll never, you know, I'll never hear the Christmas story told anywhere without thinking of Linus standing out there under the spotlight. But when I was really little, all I wanted to do was open my gifts. Now, Chris had a, Gifts had a strict hierarchy. Starting at the top were the toys I really wanted. When I, I know when I was by 8, 9, 10, those gifts were Legos and video games. Why my parents have boxes of Legos at home still. Then the toys I would enjoy, then board games, then books, and finally clothes. I was never into clothes. I don't think a lot of kids are generally into clothes, but I may be wrong, it just may be me. And of all the clothes, socks is the most boring, or are the most boring. I never got, got it why, like, whenever my dad was asked, what do you want for Christmas? His response to us was, socks. Socks. Really, Dad? I mean, socks are just boring. The only reason they're the most boring is the second most boring underwear is also slightly embarrassing, which makes it that much more exciting. Socks are just utilitarian. You use them every day. It's like giving, it feels like to a kid, getting breakfast cereal. But there was one gift, one gift that stood above all other gifts. 
I think I was about four. I could have been three because it was one of our Christmases back in Indiana, and I, I know I moved in 1991 after I turned five. And he was a Tonka Pooch Patrol bloodhound named Barky. You might remember these, if you remember commercials from the late early 90s, late 80s, where the, the brow flips up and he's supposed to look friendly. His brows never stayed up very well, where you could flip it down and pull the teeth up, and now he's protecting you. Anyway, I got him. I named him Barky. I was four at the time. My brother got a German Shepherd version named Pickles. I think my parents helped with that one. To be fair, though, my three-year-old names all of her toys after food. I have strawberry, coconut, peaches. Starbear is the one who got a different kind of name. And a few years later, Laban got his own version, which we named Poodles. I mean, Toodles, because he was a poodle. I don't know if Laban came up with that or we just gave it to them like that. Anyway, Barky was and still is one of my favorite gifts of all time. Long after my other plush animals were retired to the closet, Barky stayed at my bed. Even when I went to college, he came and lived on the shelf next to my bed. And now he actually sleeps in my, my daughter's bed. Sometimes he gets the snuggles. He was a once-in-a-lifetime gift, that kind of gift I can't bear the thought of losing. But I'll tell you what I got a lot more use of, out of the year, over the years. Socks. Okay, I have come around to my father's line of thought. You can never have enough socks. I would add that I am a huge fan of fun socks. I really wanted to wear my hot pepper socks today. However, one of the mates didn't make it through the laundry. So I'm waiting for that one to be found. I mean, I wear them all the time right now because it's cold and it's not exactly pleasant to walk around in flip-flops. And even so, I'd probably be wearing socks during the summer because I try not to preach in socks unless maybe I'm at Camp Inspiration Hills. I see all these people gathering at the Corinth church. They were overly excited for their version of the Tonka Pooch Patrol Dog. Some had been given a gift to speak in tongues. Others enjoyed their new freedoms and showed them off proudly. And still argues, others argued over the minutiae of their new faith. These shiny new gifts. And they ignored the socks. The boring gift, love. The one that you use every single day that you don't think about, but gives you more comfort than you would ever realize. Sometimes love just isn't that exciting. It's kind of mundane. Most people have love in their lives and lots of it. Parents, friends, spouses, children, extended family. And if you have a live dog, that's basically, I think, what dogs are. They're love wrapped up in a little furry shell. Cats can, too. It depends on the cat. And I love cats, I'll be honest. We talk about love with God and Jesus. God so loved the world. Love, though, is not a uniquely Christian value. I mean, Jesus reminds us in Matthew 5 that even the most harmful, sinful, evil people have love. They love their family and they have family who loves them. So it's really not that surprising that when gifts of the Spirit are manifesting in this fledgling church, the people are flocking to the new shiny gifts that they are completely different than what they've had before. I mean, sure, love is great, now you have the gift of prophecy. You get to see bits and pieces of the future. Sure, love is great, but now I have a deeper understanding of God and faith than others do that I've ever had. Sure, love is great, 
But now I can do this thing that would never have been acceptable before, but is so releasing a new level of independence. It's like Christmas morning at my grandma's with all of the cousins on the floor bumping into each other as they open and play with their new gifts and the clothing, the socks neatly stacked to one side for aunts and uncles to pick up and put in their rooms later. For the glory of God and our neighbor's good. We all know those words. It graces our bulletin every week right under the name of the church. It sits just outside, etched into the stone on our door. They originate in something called the Heidelberg Catechism. A catechism is a body of material that's meant to be an instruction manual on how to live the Christian life. The Heidelberg Catechism was a product of Lutheran and Reformed traditions in the early days of the Reformation um, and became the central document, a central document, of the Reformed movement. So today's modern Presbyterians and the United Church of Christ still have it as a basis of their tradition. And it's heavily affected Anglicans and Methodists and many other traditions as well. There the words, God's glory and neighbor's good appear in a text about taking vows. But there's this man named August Hermann Frank, a Lutheran preacher, and he expanded on this idea and how, what it really meant, taking it out of simply this context of whether we should say vows or not, but applying it across more broadly. He was heavily influenced and became a major influencer of the pietist movement, which would eventually go to a young man named Alexander Mack and others, and the brethren were born out of this synthesis of the pietist and the Anabaptist. This phrase would later be famously inscribed above the hearth in the publishing house of Christopher Sauer, or Christoph Sauer, who well, printed the first Bibles in the U.S. in German, printed the first Church of the Brethren hymnals, printed a lot of our pamphlets, and even gave them space to worship. It's all a callback to 1 Corinthians 13. For our neighbor's good. That was the problem. It had become self-centered. All this love for God was only pointed in two directions, towards themselves as they fell in love with these new gifts that they had been given, and towards love with God. I'm, what they were doing, it wasn't unfaithful, but they didn't think of how their love was shutting others out. Love is, though, such a vast thing. You know, today's title is Love Like an Ocean. I really love that analogy because of this story I once heard, and I thought about this a lot. What is it like to be in the love of God? It's like being a sunken ship. If God's love is the ocean, something infinite feeling. We are fully submerged in it. We're separate from it because we're the boat. We have our uniquely boat-like appearance or human appearance for us. But that boat is fully submerged. The love surrounds it, but it also fills it. But we always run the risk of always focusing on us being in that love and not also being the, trans, the person who shows that love outwards to others. Paul calls us back, reminding us 
that the call to Christian love isn't simply about the call of the love between you and God and you and Jesus. It's about the love that you have towards them and about the love that makes you reach out and grasp others. We're coming to the Christian season, and what does God do to show love to us? God comes down here to us to fully experience our side. Kind of like Paul thinking about what it was like for the Corinthian, the random Corinthian walking into the church and seeing all of this chaos going on and going, this isn't for me. God walks in from the outside and sees everything going on in the world. Now, of course, God's God and Jesus is Jesus. And so that means Jesus can do things to change the way it's happening. But Jesus also experiences what it's like to be human. What it's like to have sore feet, a hungry belly, a tired body. So how do we show love to our neighbors? How do we take what Paul has told us? That the highest calling is love. That when all things come to an end, the greatest is love that will be left. As we're going into Christmas, let's love. Remembering how our actions can change someone's journey to the walk to the manger. Remembering to reach back and grab onto someone, even though we're jumping for joy and celebrating ourselves, to bring them into the conversation, to bring them closer to God, to bring them closer to that manger with us. If love is like an ocean, Let's pull others in to enjoy the waves. Others in to enjoy the vastness of it. Let's not lose our heads. God didn't call us into faith because the end is now. The end is coming. Jesus is coming again. We all know that. But Jesus left us with work orders to love one another, to lift one another up, to bring others closer to the manger, closer to Jesus, closer to the cross, most importantly, closer to the empty tomb. So let's keep working for the glory of God and for the love and the good of our neighbors. Thank you. For those of you who are uh, staying to, to do some carol singing, we are going to need the red books today, so we'll be handing those out. As you go out into the world, be filled with love. God's love is vast, like the ocean. We are living in it. Let's show that love to our brothers and sisters. And yes, you can go shout it on the mountain that Jesus Christ is born. But you can also invite others to come shout it with you. And after you're done, go show it.
Amen.